Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 194. We'll continue in the Proverbs with a brief summary of chapters 12 through 15 and follow with some thoughts about corporal pun... I mean child abuse. Who loves reproof, loves knowledge, but who hates rebuke is a brute. So begins chapter 12 of Proverbs, and the tweet storm doesn't let up for a minute. The message is clear. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Well, not exactly. It's more like, quote, the good man finds favor from Adonai, but he will condemn the cunning schemer. A man will not be firm founded in wickedness, but the root of the righteous is not shaken. Also, honor. What brings it? Quote, by his insight will a man be praised. But then there's this follow-up quote, better a scorned man who has a slave than one who fancies himself honored and lacks bread, meaning that honor isn't everything. The next two adages are related only in their agricultural theme. The righteous isn't cruel to their animals, the wicked is. And the wise understands that eating bread is preceded by hard work, and one who thinks differently doesn't understand how the world works. Shlomo then moves on to discuss how words matter. Quote, In the crime of lips is an evil snare, but the righteous comes out from straits. From the fruit of a man's mouth he is sated with good, a man gets recompense for his acts. In other words, what you say matters. It has an impact on people. Everybody hurts sometimes. Quote, one may speak out like sword stabs, but the tongue of the wise is healing. So be careful and watch what you say. Chapter 13 continues on this theme, connecting the mouth to well-being. Quote, from the fruit of a man's mouth he eats goodly things, but from the throat of traitors comes outrage. Shlomo continues with a flurry of adages about taking things slow and being patient or listening rather than talking and the value of having a good messenger in your employ. He also advises famously, quote, who spares his rod hates his son, but who loves him seeks him out for reproof. A version of this famous adage has justified the smacking of kids across the centuries, and it's one of those examples where the Hebrew is so compact, seven words with internal rhyme and assonance, that sort of balloon out into an unwieldy 16 in the English. Chapter 14 brims over with sayings and maxims sandwiched in between a frame at the beginning and at the end, four quartets of four maxims. The first deals with positive and negative types. Baby, can't you see? I'm Who's toxic and should be avoided? The scoffer, the fool, and the dullard. Who should be embraced? The discerning, the shrewd, the upright. How can you tell the difference between them? Who seeks out wisdom? That's the person you should stick to. The second quartet focuses on the secrets of the heart. There are things only the heart knows. Quote, the heart knows its own bitterness, and in its joy no stranger mingles. But sometimes, quote, even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy is sorrow. 
The third quartet returns to the theme of types and the differences between them. What distinguishes a wise person and a dupe? Quote, a dupe will believe everything, but the shrewd man understands where he steps. A wise man is cautious and swerves from evil, but a fool rages and trusts too much. Oh, jeez, Frank. The final quartet takes a good hard look at the state of society. Quote, the poor man is hated even by his neighbor, but the rich man has many who love him, who scorns his neighbor offends, but happy he who pities the poor. The chapter ends with a handful of additional maxims about the individual and the collective, like, quote, righteousness raises a nation, but offense leads to want among peoples. Chapter 15 is also packed with adages and maxims and sayings, with very little to connect them together thematically, so let's just pick out a couple of bangers. Quote, a soft answer turns back wrath. Or, healing speech is a tree of life, but perverse speech breaks the spirit. Or, a discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of dullards chases folly. Or, all the days of the poor man are miserable, but a cheerful man has a perpetual feast. Or, better a pittance in the fear of Adonai than great treasure with turmoil. Or, better a meal of greens where there is love than a fatted ox where there is hatred. And finally, who casts off reproof despises himself, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Adonai's fear is wisdom's foundation, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Back in episode 33, I explored the following question proposed by a former cop and John Jay College of Criminal Justice Sociologist Peter Moskos. Given the choice between five years in prison and ten brutal lashes, which would you choose? Yes, flogging is a severe and even brutal form of punishment. Under the lash, skin is literally ripped from the body. But prison means losing a part of your life and everything you care for. Compared to this, flogging is just a few very painful strokes on your behind, and it's over in a few minutes. If you had the choice, if you were given the option of staying out of jail, wouldn't you choose to be flogged and released? The problem with this thought experiment is how it presents the dilemma as if there's only two choices, to be swallowed up by the carceral state or be spanked by it. I took that up in episode 33, but it does highlight this idea that somehow enacting punishments directly on the body can address and remedy whatever problem there is. Steal a cabbage? <coughs> cheat on your spouse? <coughs> oh no! Mom's favorite vase. She always says, don't play ball in the house. <coughs> and it's hard to say if this practice began in the domestic sphere that is at home and made its way into the public sphere or vice versa, but as punishments go, you know, lashing, hitting, smacking, the impact is immediate, and the cost is very little to implement. <laughs> and the thing is, despite all the changes in culture and society and all the norms, hitting, lashing, smacking persists. Why? According to Guy Geltner in his 2013 book, Flogging Others, corporal punishment persists because of selfing and othering. Selfing, that is, doing something to confirm or inscribe the self. So, the act of punishing another establishes the legitimacy and cohesiveness of the punisher. And the society on whose behalf he punishes. We disapprove of what you did, and so we 
are going to affirm that we disapprove by taking it out on you physically. This, Geltner argues, is a political act because it involves affirming groups, one with power and one without. And then you flip the script to the lashed, the person who is the object of punishment. That person is pushed to the margins of polite society and civilization itself. This is othering. However, I don't think the Chinese thought of these factors when judges condemned the guilty to branding, severing of the nose, feet amputations, castration, and death during the Shang dynasty. Subsequent dynasties had different things to say about corporal punishment and the Shang, like Li Shu, who advised the founder of the Qin dynasty in the 3rd century BCE, quote, Hanzi said, loving mothers have prodigal sons, whereas contumacious slaves are not found in a household that maintains strict discipline. According to the laws of Lord Shang, persons throwing ashes on the roads were subject to corporal punishment. Now, dumping ashes is a minor crime, and corporal punishment is a heavy penalty. One could say that corporal punishment in Jewish tradition goes all the way back to the beginning, or at least perhaps one type of it does. Perhaps with Cain, who after killing Hevel, his brother, he was marked by God. It's not a punishment per se. In fact, it's designed to protect him from anyone seeking to avenge Hevel's murder by killing Cain. So perhaps it's a mark indicating that de facto death sentence was commuted to permanent exile. Except that Leviticus is clear, Jews are not to make a permanent mark on their body, self-inflicted or otherwise. Exodus also makes it clear that Lex Talionis, that is, the principle of martial arts superstar Chuck Norris in an eye for an eye, is very much in effect. And later in Deuteronomy, flogging is an appropriate sentence, as is the concept of proportionality in the meeting out of this punishment. The fifth volume of Tractate Nezikin in the Mishnah call, is called Makot, or Lashes, and it's dedicated to hashing out all the technical details of this type of justice. I should add that lashes were perceived, at least in Jewish circles, as being a humane form of punishment in contrast to what was practiced by the surrounding culture, which is always described as barbaric. And you also have this, I guess you could say, sort of guardrail against excessive whipping because that was regarded as violating the commandments against humiliating or shaming a person. Flogging wasn't the special punishment reserved for a class of person. There were at all about 168 transgressions that would get you whipped, and they were all over the map. And even then, eventually, commentators found exemptions and offered a fine as a suitable substitute. I suppose I should move on to discuss the real focus of today's episode, what folks in the biz call non-judicial corporal punishment, otherwise known as spanking, belting, smacking, slapping, and other you know, kinds of deprivations, which I would just call in short child abuse. And as I said at the outset, it's not clear where the practices started and where they creeped into, but many folks who would argue that smacking a kid here and there is an effective means of keeping them in line will point not only to its short-term effectiveness, but to numerous authorities, ancient, medieval, and modern, in a variety of spheres. Is Proverbs the first in that long line? The adage, spare the rod, spoil the child, is often touted by cultural and religious conservatives as justification for child abuse except that the line in Proverbs says nothing about spoiling any child. This phrase, 
was actually coined by Samuel Butler, a 17th century poet and satirist in his poem, Hudibras. I guess it's pronounced Hudibras, H-U-D-I-B-R-A-S. The, the poem's main character and the widow he longs for are planning to start a love affair, but before the widow commits to it, she asks Hudibras to prove his love for her by committing twisted acts, or at least committing to doing twisted acts. The widow then states, quote, if matrimony and hanging go by destiny, why not whipping too? What medicine else can cure the fits of lovers when they lose their wits? Love is a boy by poet styled, then spare the rod and spoil the child. What's happened here is not what happened with the Mark of Cain I mentioned earlier, where the Mark was supposed to be a protection for Cain, but became a symbol for demerit. That's perjuration. Or like the Midas touch, where that was supposed to be a curse, but today means someone who brings good fortune and success. That's amelioration. Here, the Maxim simply just got corrupted. And for many, they look to this mangling of Proverbs as justification for abusing their children. When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. So let's go back to the source and look at Proverbs again. Although Shlomo, the purported author of Proverbs, probably never worked a day in his life in the fields, he was undoubtedly familiar with some of the professions practiced by his subjects, including the one his father David had before becoming a freebooter and eventually king. I'm referring to shepherding. A shepherd uses various tools to herd his sheep, including dogs who were bred specifically to keep the sheep in a close group so they could be moved from place to place to graze in relative safety free from predators. If you recall, Moshe in chapter 3 of Exodus was chasing down an errant sheep when he saw the burning bush, and Moshe had the shepherd's most trusted tool in hand when he spoke to God. After taking off his sandals, and then there's the back and forth where God tells Moshe he's going to go free the Jews from Egypt, Moshe says, quote, what if they don't believe me and don't listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you? God replies, what's that in your hand? Moshe replies, a rod. Because no self-respecting shepherd would go anywhere without his rod. There are variations of this tool, the famous shepherd's crook, you know, the long rod with the curve at the end that they used in vaudeville to pull terrible performers off stage. <laughs> The shepherd would use the crook to raise the sheep's head so they could see where the flock was and catch up. The shepherd would use the rod to guide sheep who begin to wander away from the flock back into a single group. It can also be used defensively to keep the predators away from the sheep. It's never used against the sheep to discipline them. There's no hitting. There's no smacking. It's only used as a gentle corrective. Here, little lamb, you've lost your way. Follow along here and get back on the right track. So when Shlomo says, who spares his rod hates his son, he's not saying don't hold back, smack the crap out of your kid. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. He says, if you abdicate your responsibility as a parent to correct your child and don't nudge them back on the right track, the way of righteousness and wisdom, you must clearly hate your child. Because only a parent who cares will step in and correct. And when you do, in no way does it involve physical violence. This isn't the first instance where a quote from the Tanakh that meant one thing was corrupted in common parlance to mean the opposite, or enlisted to justify some terrible behavior. And sadly, it's not the last. like we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. 
Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 195, when we continue in the Proverbs with chapters 16 through 19.